Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Travis King. Before we get to Travis, here's a few announcements. First and foremost, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there. You can see articles that I've written. You can see articles that some of the guests have written. You can see their photos. You can see links to all their social media. You can see links to our social media. And that is, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter, we have a Facebook page at Travel Tales Podcast. I'd appreciate you follow on all those platforms. Also on our website, you'll see links to Stitcher Radio and Apple Podcasts. We are on iHeartRadio and Spotify and pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. So if you can, please subscribe and give us a good rating on those platforms. I would appreciate it. It helps people find the show because it boosts our presence there. And it costs you nothing, so that would be a cool thing for you to do. If you think you might be right for the show, or you think you know somebody who might be right for the show, write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. Well, Travis King is a guy that reached out to me, thinking he'd be right for the show, and he was right. Here's a guy that's been traveling around for a better part of a decade, all over the world. He's from just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the state of my birth. But he has lived and worked all over the world. If you want to know all about him, you can go to TravisWKing.com. He also wrote a book about his travels called Not That Anyone Asked. It's available on Amazon, and we have a link to it at TravelTalesPodcast.com. It's a memoir about all of his travels on the road and what he's learned. And he has done and seen a lot of things. He was thrown in jail in Australia, worked on a fishing boat in Alaska, worked in Europe and throughout Asia, traveled a lot through South America, and he now makes his home in Oaxaca, Mexico. Just a couple blocks from the beach, and he seems to be putting down roots, finally. So we had a lot to talk about, and I'm glad he reached out to me. I enjoyed meeting him and hearing his tales, and I think you will too. Please enjoy my conversation with Travis King. All right, Travis King, you are in Mexico. Am I uh, correct in assuming that? That is yes? correct. I'm in okay. Puerto Escondido on the Oaxacan coast down here. Okay. Now, I've worked a number of cruise ships that uh, you know doing comedy, and I think we stopped in Puerto Escondido. Is that true? Nice. I mean, yeah. It sounds very be, uh, familiar to me. I think we have stopped there. Yeah, it's right on the coast. It's basically just like a straight shot down from Oaxaca City, if you know where Oaxaca City is. And... Uh, yeah, it's like down the coast from Acapulco, a full day's drive, if you know where Acapulco is. So yeah, I, I would imagine it would, it would be on a cruise ship route. It makes sense. Well, I can tell by your accent, you're a native uh, of Mexico. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Born and raised here. No. Um, my partner for the last two years is is from Mexico City. So we've just sort of ended up, uh, we made Mexico City home for most of the pandemic. And then we made the move down here to the beach on October 10th. We bought an old Ford F-150 and put our little rescue dog in it and, and made the two-day drive. And yeah, it was like a scene out of a Wes Anderson film. It, it was great. Okay. Well, uh, I didn't know how to describe you here. Would you say you're a, a, an author first or a, a blogger or what, what would you say? 
I think going forward, I'm an author first and uh, like a community community uh, specialist and, and architect is sort of what I've built myself as over the last uh, five, 10 years, just trying to help build communities both virtually and in person, most notably for the company Remote Year. So any of the travelers out there listening to this who have been getting hit up by Remote, remote Year emails and on, on your Facebook and Instagrams, uh, I was one of the top, like the first 10 employees basically of that company. So I got lucky to get those Facebook messages really early on when they were just getting started. And I sent them a cold email and got a job uh, leading their third ever program. So that's sort of how I got uh, my foot in the door there with Remote Year. And then and then after that year ended, I ended up as their director of community and um, just kept going with them until the pandemic, basically. So I worked for them for the, about the past four years up until the pandemic hit. So explain uh, Remote Year is basically they encourage people to live anywhere or work digitally, like digital nomads for a year? Yeah. So but it's basically like it was the first sort of organized travel program built specifically for digital nomads. So the idea was, yeah, like you can go, you know, if you have a job that allows you to work from anywhere, that's great. But not many people take full advantage of that opportunity. They, they tend to just, you know, walk down the street to their local Starbucks. Mm-hmm. So in this program in remote year, you travel with the community of other digital nomads you spend one month at a time um, in cities all over the world. And yeah, the first, the first, I think like 20 programs were actually all a year long too. So it was, it was people making a year commitment, like a, a huge choice for their life, a huge change. Um, and then we started rolling out six month and four month programs. And now remote years kind of back starting to operate again. And they're doing like one month programs and things that are a little easier to say yes to. Um, but yeah, so it's essentially being a digital nomad, but in community with a program. So you kind of know who your built in friend group is going to be. You have people taking care of you. There's a local local team on the ground. You have a program leader as well. Um, kind of making sure that everybody's happy and things are going well. And uh, yeah, yeah, so it's, it was a great, great time for me, great situation for me. And, and like I learned a ton during, during that stretch of my life. And, and I got to travel for, you know, four years, um, <laughs> see a lot of new countries, all as part of my job. So yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. That's great. So, uh, well, we should get the plug out of the way. First of all, you're, uh, you got a book out. Let's do it. So let's get that out and, out and talk about the inspiration of the book and what made you write it. Well, thanks, man. Um, yeah, so the book's called Not That Anyone Asked. Um, I think, you know, the joke is sort of right there in the title of like, you know, I you travel the world. and I um, asked, Travis. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks. I finally got asked. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, it's like that, that old thing that I think all world travelers have experienced where you get home from like a life-changing trip and it's just hard to kind of have those conversations about what it all meant because it's, it's hard to relate to, I guess, if you've never left home. Um, so that's kind of like where the, where the little joke in the title comes from. But, yeah, I, I wrote it. Um, about the first four years of my travels. And basically like, I think, you know, it was like a compliment sort of that I would get after having traveled for like two and a half, three years, three and a half years, people would be like, Hey, when are you going to write your book? You know, it's just sort of like a, a clever compliment, I think to give somebody to say, Hey, you've been traveling a lot, but that, that, you know, thing sort of planted a seed in my mind and I just couldn't shake it. And I, and, and I've always thought of myself as a pretty good writer. I've always gotten that feedback, you know, I have a master's degree. So I've, I've definitely like written a lot of things in my life. And I, and I travel blogged when I was traveling a fair bit as well. And then, so yeah, they just really, it, it really warmed its way into my brain, planted a seed. And I just kept thinking like, yeah, if I did write a book, what would it be any good? And then I was actually at like a goal setting retreat for a remote year and we were, we were making like, we were doing like a visioning exercise and setting up what our life would look like a year from then. And in that vision, I, I was like, Hey, I'm halfway through the book and da, 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 da. Ultimately I made like a 
promised to the group I was with out loud that I would, that I would write one chapter worth reading by the end of the month. Um, and then I, that was in Italy. I ended up back in Croatia. And I remember going to our co-working space in Croatia and I had the first line in my head that it just popped into my head when I was walking to the co-working space. Um, so I got, I got to the co-working space, opened my computer and wrote down. I just started telling people I was leaving. And that was the first line of the book. And it led to, you know, really like it just, it sort of just had a life of its own. Like I remember setting the goal of don't let a week pass without opening it up and, and working on it a little bit. And I was, you know, working full time at remote year at this point. So it wasn't my full-time job. Nobody was asking me to write a book. You know, I wasn't like <laughs> contracted to do it. I just thought I had the stories in me You know, I, I traveled that long and I had enough sort of really kind of crazy stories to tell. And like, I'm a person that has a lot of thoughts. Like I just, I just want to share. I, I think a lot, I, I, you know, write down a lot of things into like an iPhone note that I think are worth remembering. And basically with the process of the book, I just kept going with that whole concept of trying to open it at least once a week and, and put some words down. And the whole thing ended up being like a pretty chronological retelling of those first four years that I traveled. The spoiler to kind of give away here, I guess, is at the end, like the tension that I'm kind of building is between between like my dad and myself, because he was like, what are you doing? You have a master's degree. Why are you just like walking around the earth with no shoes on? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and <laughs> also like, what is this all leading to kind of for me, like in my professional life, you know, I had this master's degree. What was I going to, was I ever going to use it? Or did I want to work in the travel industry? Did I kind of want to make a career out of this? Um, and ultimately, I, that book sort of ends with the final story of, of getting that first job with remote year. So I finally was able to come home for Christmas that, that winter and say, hey, like this all did lead to something. And now I have this amazing job in the travel industry. Um, and then that job allowed me to continue to travel for another four or five years. And I'm still now, now I'm almost like 10 years gone from, from the States. But basically, the book is those first four years where I just kind of got the bravery to like put my stuff in a bag and go see what happened. What was your master's in? So I did a master's in nonprofit management. I was a, I was a Trinity fellow at Marquette university. It's a pretty like selective program for, uh, for do-gooders more or less. A lot of my, <laughs> a lot, yeah, a lot of my classmates there ended up as like U S delegates in like different countries around the world. And, right. and yeah, here I am just, you know, on the beach in Puerto, <laughs> trying, to, trying to make dreams come true. Are you from Milwaukee? Yep. I grew up in Milwaukee on the North shore there. And yeah, you know, and I, I was back. So, so yeah. Oh, sorry. I was born in Port Washington. Oh, really? No way. Yep. Yes. You guys had an excellent high school soccer team. Oh, I have no <laughs> idea. I mean, we moved, uh, we moved to Chicago when I was like four. Okay. And so, but you know, I worked don't, in, don't remember it. Yeah. I, uh, but you know, I played every town in Wisconsin starting out in, in, as a comic. So I, I, cool, man. yeah. What town are you in? What town uh, were growing you up? In? Yeah. We, I mean, I was in Fox Point. It was a village, but it's like, you know, basically if you go north from Milwaukee, you go through Shorewood, Whitefish Bay, and then oh, the yeah. next town you hit is, is Fox Point. So we're like just a suburb. We're like a 15 minute drive from the city in the suburbs, just north of the city. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite clubs was the Comedy Cafe in, uh, in Milwaukee. Yeah, man. That's probably before. That was the 90s. That was, that was before your time, Travis. I'm going to say think it's it. In the, I think it's in the third ward. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's gone now. Been a, oh, it's gone. I would have been a youngster for sure. It was Brady Street. It was on Brady Street. I yeah, remember. man. Dude, yeah. Brady Street's the best. That that street is still super fun. Yeah. So anyway, I know your your dad says you you know you probably thought you were nuts, but <laughs> I mean, he must have had some kind of confidence in you. I mean, it wasn't like you took a business degree and left. You know, this 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 was kind of part of your job, 
wasn't it? Well, no, I mean, at first, like the way I conceived of that first trip, I just bought a flight into South America. I basically started in Colombia. I thought of it as like an extended master's degree program. Like I'm going to continue to learn about myself and the world. And then like, I'll right. be home. Like I thought, I thought it'd be four or five months, you know, obviously now it's turned into nine, almost 10 years. Mm-hmm. So like I, nobody could have expected what was going to happen from that trip and how much it kind of changed me and changed the direction that I saw the rest of my life going. And I really thought it was just a big celebration of the end of my master's degree. And then I would go back to work in the nonprofit sector in Milwaukee or Chicago or something like that. But um, yeah, plans change. What was your travel background before that? Were you like me? Like I went to not too far from you. I went to Northern Illinois university and uh, I hadn't left the country till I was 21 and, and left, you know, did the whole six week backpacking thing after college, you know, in Europe and that kind of thing, the URL pass deal. And uh, that changed my life and my perspective was that one had you left the country before you took off yeah. or so not not really i i don't like ha- like i remember growing up we drove to like canada when i was a kid and i and Ooh, i had this very weird different memory country. of seeing like yeah like mimes in quebec and it, they were like <laughs> speaking french and i was like this is crazy Ooh, but exotic <laughs> yeah yeah that was the only like international travel i did kind of my whole childhood and then i had this weird thing like in my early 20s and stuff i just felt really like career focused because I felt like that's what all the adults around me made me think was important or whatever. And, and yeah, I really just didn't have that much travel experience until I went, I went and did a a thing called world teach where I got to go kind of teach for a summer um, in Cape town, South Africa. And that three months really, I think that was kind of like that same thing that your European backpacking trip did for you. I did mine a little bit later. I think I was 27 when I went to South Africa, but it really just made me feel like, wow, like the world is open to me and I can like, you know, show up with a backpack and try to make friends and and see how this goes. And my experience in South Africa was just so good that it gave me a lot more bravery to go see more parts of the world. And it felt like very like far away and kind of exotic, you know, so having success there with, with that summer and those travels made me feel like, okay, what's next? What's the next big trip? And then, yeah, basically I had two years of grad school. And then when, when it was finished, I just had my heart set on going to see more of the world. And I, it was also one of those things where I had, you know, like I had made every decision in my twenties based on what made most sense for my resume and for my career as like, you know, a nonprofit person. And then I just had the thought one day of like, when do I ever get to make a decision just for me, like for my life, for, for my own happiness and once I had that thought, yeah, I really couldn't shake that thought. And I, and then I just waited till grad school finished and was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do something for myself. And like I said, at the time I framed it as like a four or five month trip. I would come back. I would, you know, jump on the job boards and find something in the nonprofit field and, and stay home is I think what everybody thought I was going to do at that <laughs> time. But then that first trip was just so good that when I got home from it, I, I booked another flight into Mexico, like for like oh, two weeks after I got home basically. And then, yeah, the, the adventure just kept going. So it was that first trip you said it was South America? Yeah, South America. I did, did uh, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, down to Bolivia. And then, yeah. Sweet. Took about a month in each of one of those, one of those places. And then, yeah, I flew back home. How were your language skills before you left? Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> I, I took one year of Spanish in high school, then I actually dropped out and, and switched to Latin just because everybody knew it was an easy A at my high school. Right. Oh, and who's going to need Spanish, right? GPA. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. It's like, it's one of the very clear, like, I messed that up looking back at my life type things. But also, yeah, it was like, it was the guidance I was getting from everybody older than me. They made it seem like the GPA was the end all be all. And if I could get a better grade and... I think the Spanish, my freshman Spanish was the only like C I got in high school, right? I just was not good at it. So I dropped out because it was hard, (laughs) you know, 
it, it might've helped my GPA, but it definitely did a disservice to, to, you know, the rest of my life. And I'm living in Mexico and I study Spanish every morning. Now that when I wake up, I do like an hour of Spanish just cause I, it's no longer like a thing I'd like to know how to, to do. It's like, I need to know how to speak Spanish. I'm going to, I'm going to live here and I'm going to do business here and I got to figure it out. Who are you using to train with? Cause I need a new program. So I was, I did like a year of Duolingo. Um, I just paid for like the pro version when the pandemic started and that was pretty good for about a year. Now I'm using Spanish Dict, which is like an app uh, that has like vocab games, grammar games. Um, it's pretty good. Yeah, Spanish Dict. It's actually, it's very good. It's, it's an app you can get on your phone. It's, it's got great, like right now I'm just doing their vocab builder, but it's great. And it's got me remembering a lot, a lot of new words and I've only been using it for like two months now. <laughs> but then I also just started like I, my level is where I can kind of read basic Spanish stuff. So I, I have a book called like Spanish for beginners that I got on my Kindle and I read a chapter from that every morning and it has like the paragraph in Spanish and then below it in English. So you can kind of like check if you're comprehending well, but that's actually, I think really helped kind of advance my, my Spanish comprehension as well. It's, it's been good. So I do both of those things. I do Spanish dict and then I read from my Kindle every morning now. Do you make your girlfriend speak Spanish to you every day? I, you know, we've gone back and forth on that. Like I get from her perspective, it's just not fun. I'm like not myself in yeah, Spanish. So she's a like, hassle. totally. It's like hanging out with like a six-year-old version of your boyfriend or whatever. <laughs> like it's not an enjoyable time for her. I don't think so. I don't, I, I, we do a thing sometimes where if, if we're cooking dinner at home, we'll be like, let's try to do this meal in Spanish. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't make her do it too much because it's definitely not fun for her. <laughs> that can also make you feel lazy or you can get lazy. Let her take the lead when you guys go out. And do all the speaking and then you don't learn as quickly. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, she always does like want to jump to my rescue when I'm struggling in <laughs> Spanish. So we've had that conversation. I'm like, let me drown. Like, let me just like, let me flail around and see if I can get my meaning across. Because eventually that's like, you know, that'll help you learn too. Just like trying and <laughs> failing and doing the best you can. But yeah, I'm getting I, there. I'm learning. I saw the Amazon page for the book and it said something about uh, you being handcuffed in prison. Let's get to that travel tale. Yeah. Yeah, not not a high moment of my travels. How much do you? How much of that story do you want to give away, or do we have to buy the book? Hey, I mean, I would say buy the book, read the whole thing. I think you know. <laughs> give us a tease. I, uh, give us a tease. Yeah, happy to though. So when I basically it was it was um, Australian immigration that got me, and if, if anybody's spent time gone over there on a work visa or just really any travel in Australia, you know that they take it pretty serious. They even like, you know, if you have dirt on your boots, they won't let that in because it's got like potentially invasive species or invasive, but whatever, bacteria, that kind of thing. <laughs> so they're just very serious about their borders. And that also comes uh, when it comes to like working there. And I had a, I had a work visa for Australia that I, you know, was legal. And I worked there. I worked in Melbourne for six months. And then I worked in Byron Bay, which if you've been to Australia, it's the, oh, yeah. I've been it's to the Byron easternmost Bay. point. Yeah, it's the easternmost point of the East Coast. It's got like a dolphin colony that lives there. It's a little surf community. It's just like, you know, one of the happiest places on earth, a really nice place to call home. When I got to Byron, I just felt like, you know, it really welcomed me in because all of a sudden in like a week, I had a job as a kayak guide, taking people out to go see the dolphins in, in the bay. I had another job at a hostel, kind of hosting all the party events. And then I got a third job at a cafe where some of the most amazing musicians I've ever seen were playing like every night of the week. So really like, I just tried to turn my life into 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 a fun way of making money basically every hour I was awake and I, I managed to do it. So I was coming up really fast financially because Australia is sort of like the boomer bust economy. Like you can go for a night out and a couple beers with friends and spend a hundred dollars easily. 
And, but also if you work an extra three hours at your job, you make a hundred dollars back pretty easily. So like it really, it felt like, you know, financial gains and losses were like pretty intense there, but in Byron, I just found my feet and I was able to like make pretty good money. And basically then when my, when my visa ran up, I went back to the States. I had like a a kind of sad heartbreak thing that is in the book, but I won't get into now, but basically Mm -hmm. made me decide like, okay, I need to get back out of Wisconsin and uh, I emailed all of my bosses in, in Byron. I was like, hey, if I came back, I don't have a work visa anymore. But if I came back, like, could I still just work somehow for like cash or whatever? And all three of my bosses like that night were like, yeah, just come back. We'll figure it out. So I booked a flight, went back to Byron, was back on a kayak, you know, paddling around with dolphins and happy tourists like two days later. And I was just like, ah, made the best decision ever. So happy to be back. But I was on a, I was on a tourist visa that time. So it was three months. I remember at some point during it, I found out a way to extend it online. So I didn't even have to go talk to anybody. I just extended it for another three months. And then at that point, somebody, one of my best friends, this guy, Patrick Cole was like, Hey, come visit me in Thailand. I'm at the end of this long, he did like a six month trip through Southeast Asia. He was like, come, come hang out with me at the end. I actually have a little more money left over than I thought I would. We're going to like, just do like hotels and party and like have, have a blast <laughs> on the last few weeks of my trip. I'm like, yeah, uh, bet let's do it. So I, I fly out, meet him, have a great time. And I really, on this trip, I'd only took like a little backpack and like a toothbrush and a few pairs of like board shorts, you know? And all of my stuff, like everything I owned in the world, my computer, everything that meant anything to me was in my hostel room with my girlfriend, Margot at the time. And so, yeah, I have this great trip with my buddies. We go to, we go to the, you know, the uh, Gulf of Thailand islands. We hit those up Kuala Lumpur and I fly back into Australia from Kuala Lumpur. And basically, yeah, like long story short, it's all in the book. But as soon as I scanned my passport, the lady was like, you need to talk to her. She handed my passport to somebody else more scary and I'll always remember this line that that lady said, like she had my passport in hand and I think it must have gotten flagged like on their system. And then she looked at me and like in the scariest, most intimidating voice, she said, I need to confiscate your phone. It's a matter of national security. And I was like, Ooh, and I take my, <laughs> yeah. And I took my phone out of my pocket. And I remember even when the plane landed, I took it off airplane mode and like looked for any texts that might've came in while I was in the sky that would look potentially incriminating. And I like deleted everything off my phone before flying back into Australia. Like I thought I had it pretty cleaned up, but then when I took my phone out of my pocket to hand it to this scary lady, I looked at the lock screen and there were two new text messages on one was my boss at the restaurant and just said, Hey, paychecks came in early. You can pick them up whenever you want. And I was like, that's not good. And then the other one, the the other one was just a buddy. And it just said, what's the name of that kayak company you work for? And I was just like, Oh, so I looked at those two texts I handed her the phone and like, yeah, my heart just like fell through my body onto the floor of that, of that immigration room. And I just kind of knew I was sunk. And then it was like four hours of like intense interrogation, just straight up like law and order style where I was like locked into a little room with a steel table and a camera in the corner and two, two locked doors. And it went on for hours. And then finally they brought me this really official document that said, your visa has been revoked. You're no longer allowed in this country. They took me to an immigration prison for 36 hours. Also had a crazy time there. I left with an origami swan that is also one of my favorite stories in the book <laughs> um, from, from this really scary inmate there who became a buddy of mine in those two days. And uh, yeah, I was, I was flown back into Kuala Lumpur and, and forcibly removed from the country. But in the end, like, yeah, I remember being really worried that they were going to like take the money I made illegally out of my bank account, but they didn't. And I ended up, you know, in, in Asia with the $5,000 that I made illegally in Australia that I probably shouldn't have made or been allowed to make it right. But then that was my, that was my purse. And it lasted me eight months in, in Asia and it got basically just extended my travel. So at that point in my life, I was just like trying to figure out how to not go home and admit that this was all just a big mistake or something, you know, like yeah. just keep the, keep the adventure going, figure out how to keep the, you know, get the next flight, get the next country and just keep going. <laughs> Did you eventually get your computer back? Did somebody mail it to you? 
Actually, yeah. So the best, I mean, one of the best parts of that story about being in the prison was my, my fiery little French girlfriend, Margot, like I got my one call from jail, you know, like straight up out of like a movie. <laughs> they were like, Here's your one call. I, I, I called her and she was like, oh, I knew something was wrong. I could feel like my baby is far away from me. Like, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. She was, she just like knew. And I was like, oh yes. So like, I can't leave here. I, I'm on a flight out in 36 hours. Is there any way you can come? And she, she basically took a box that was way bigger than she was with all of my stuff in it to the jail in Brisbane. So it's like, you know, an hour and a half up the coast. And uh, we had like our two hour visitation session, just, you know, like crying in this immigration prison, Wisconsin boy and a French girl. Like (laughs) it was just a weird scene, but like she was, she was able to get all my stuff back, back to me. And I packed a big backpack for my trip to, to Southeast Asia. And she took the rest of my stuff and put it in a box back to my parents' place in Wisconsin. She basically like picked up all my unclaimed paychecks and was able to ship all my stuff back to, to the States that I couldn't fit in my backpack. So like all of my stuff did miraculously make it somewhere somehow. And uh, I didn't lose anything from it, but basically just because of this, you know, amazing, amazing girl, Margot, that I was with at the time. Have you been back to Australia since? No, it was a three-year ban, actually. So I had three years where I couldn't have gone back if I wanted to. I think that three-year mark had like has just passed now, like by a year or so. Yeah. So I couldn't go back now if I wanted to. But honestly, if, if I can't work in Australia, I'm not, I'm not interested in going there and giving them, you know, $3,000 just to exist for a month or whatever. Yeah. You know? and, now you, and now we can't go anyway. They locked that place <laughs> yeah. down. Yeah. Yeah. They're in New Zealand. Good luck trying to get in. Oh, uh, yeah. I want to get back to the book real quick just because, yeah, awesome. uh, you know, a lot of people have asked me when my, you know, and I'll ask a lot of travelers, yeah. so when's your book coming out? And, yeah, and exactly. I don't know if that's a way of just saying, you know what, we'd rather not hear your stories. Uh, why don't you just write it and maybe we'll buy the book? <laughs> um, <laughs> when did you shut up about your, but I think my problem is, is always just finding that through line. And when we all have stories, the spine of it, you know, the beginning, the middle, the end, you know, and it sounds like yours is more about your relationship with your father is kind of the through line through it. Yeah. So when I wrote it, I really did just write it like, what's the next story? What's the next story? And I wrote it in like a fairly chronological way. Mm -hmm. When I looked back, like I realized it spread across four continents. And then I checked like in my, in my Microsoft Word document, like, where those page breaks were, like where the first continent ended, the second continent. And it sort of organized itself. They were all like exactly around 25% of the book. So I was like, wow, this, I just got lucky, right? Like, I think you should definitely make an outline if you're going to write a book, plan out <laughs> sort of like what parts are what parts. But I got really lucky that it just broke itself up into these four continents. And that sort of just like chronological, you know, going forward in those four years is what the what the order was, but then, yeah, like the through line that I think, because honestly, I think that that kind of book is just, it reads like a history book. It's not that interesting. If that's all you're going to tell as part of your travel book, like just, I went here, then I went here, then I went here. Like that's not a very interesting book. So I was trying to figure out what else can I do? That's a little more interesting. And I basically, I tried to squeeze like I'm 37 and I tried to squeeze every good thought I've ever had in my life into this book somehow about whether it's like love, whether it's a relationship with your parents, whether it's like, pursuing what you think is a good, meaningful life. So all of that stuff, I, I think I did a good job where in like every single story, every single chapter, there's more than just like what's going on in that physical location. There's like other thoughts, like tying back to my childhood growing up in Wisconsin or um, yeah, like disappointing the baby boomer generation, whatever it is. But definitely that, that through line of just my relationship with my dad and trying to, him trying to come to peace that like his son wasn't following in his footsteps. I think I could see how it was difficult from his side. Um, but also, you know, and like my older brother is like a Harvard educated lawyer. He was like clerking for a federal judge in New York, basically just like as successful as an older brother can kind of be. And then like, here I am just like in Bolivia, like, man, eh. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> be proud of me too, dad. So I, you know, it was, I think weird from his side, 
and then and then the other the other sort of tension that I try to build throughout the book that like hopefully keeps the reader hanging on or like wondering what's going to happen is just financially like it's it's not I traveled really cheap you know I was like a hostel hopper and I volunteered I, I used to work away and I volunteered in a lot of different places uh, through that website and I, I just was trying to make it work as long as I could um, and so yeah just like where's where's the money going to come from to keep this guy's travels alive that is kind of one of the the parts like the, t- the tension of the book too through the middle and towards the end um, and then like I, I already kind of gave you the spoiler the remote your job comes <laughs> in and, and saves the day well you know just don't worry about disappointing the baby boomers they've disappointed us more than we've disappointed them so <laughs> Right, they've had yeah. they've had their turn. So okay, that's first and foremost. But anyway, that, um, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that, and like when you said like what's you know like what's the the kind of the point of the book or like why did you write the book? Like I wanted to add that to, to that question that you asked me as well. Like I, at first I wanted to write the book because I thought I had a bunch of funny stories, and then when I like was able to get it all down and look at it as a whole, I think like the bigger message was that yeah, like don't feel like so so beholden to the baby boomers blueprint. Like they, they have a blueprint for success that they think we should all follow as they're sort of like the generation of their being their kids. But like, I don't know, I, I, to me, it feels like people in like a cave full of bears and they're like waving you in, like, come, come to this cave. And you're like, why would I want to go in there? It looks mm-hmm. miserable. Like you're, you're the generation that's like, I don't know, like moved to the suburbs and isolated yourself from community and elected a guy like Trump in charge. And like, <laughs> And at the same time, you're still looking at all your kids and saying, follow us, follow us, follow us. And I think they need to kind of take a look at themselves as a generation and say, like, why, do, why are we so sure that our kids should follow in our footsteps? This is how things turned out for us. And kind of like you said, yeah, like hold their hand up and say, these are the mistakes we've made. Why don't you guys try something different? And so, like, my my book was about me trying to be brave and try something different. Um, and and it worked out where I think I'm just, you know, really happy as, as a 37 year old. And I think about all the other people in my age, other 37 year olds who, yeah, did follow that blueprint and are, and are in the suburbs with a bunch of college debt and, and a mortgage payment that's tough on them and whatever else there might be. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that I was able to muster the courage after getting that master's degree to go try something else and to see where that path would lead me. But yeah. Well, in a quick rundown, try to uh, give us an because I'm looking at the uh, description of the of your book and stuff like that, and you had some pretty crazy jobs. Just run down yeah, some yeah. of the jobs you had around the world. Right. So I did the first the trip through South America, flew home, went into Mexico, then I made it down through Mexico, Guatemala, uh, Belize, and into Honduras. And then on Honduras is the first place I really kind of stayed during my travels because I started doing my dive master, so I became you know a professional diver, I guess, on that island. And uh, Roatan? Was, uh, no, next to Roatan, it's right, it's right next to it. It's the closest island over called Utila. It's sort oh, of yeah. like the backpacker's version of Roatan. Like Roatan's a little bit nicer. <laughs> they have like a little more resorty vibe. And, and Utila's like hostels and just like, you know, you party and you dive there. That's like what you do there. So I, I fell in love with it pretty easily and stayed for five months, got my dive master. But there I worked at a bar. And there I also met a bunch of people who did sort of the Alaskan dream where they would go to Alaska for three months, make a boatload of money, travel the rest of the year on their Alaskan money. And after those conversations sort of added up, I was like, that's my plan, right? So I went to Alaska. I, I somehow got lucky and landed a job as a commercial fisherman on a gill netting boat. Ugh, you did the deadliest catch stuff? Yeah, man. We actually, we were delivering our fish to the Time Bandit, which is that oh. boat from the deadliest catch that's like kind of a famous boat. <laughs> yeah, I, I that's never felt like, like my worst nightmare. by a boat. But that, yeah, so that, that, that's in the winter, right? Like those, those shows are filmed all in the winter when it's super harsh. In the summer, it was actually like pretty nice, right? Like I, I enjoyed my time on the boat. The end of that story, though, is that I made no money. Like it's <laughs> fishing, fishing, even commercially is like fishing. It's like sometimes you catch a lot of fish. Sometimes you don't catch a lot of fish. And on that boat, we had a kind of rusty captain. 
whatever. A month passed. I worked every day as hard as I could and made zero dollars. I salvaged that summer by getting a job as a kayak guide in Alaska. That was sort of my first time ever kayak guiding. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I ended up with a really amazing kayaking guiding job in Australia too. So in the end, you know, it's like you can you can look backwards in your life and connect the dots in a way that feels like, yeah, that was meant to be sort of. But um, from what, Alaska, I went to Hawaii. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was well, what town in Alaska were you in? So that was in Seward, in okay. Seward, Alaska. Also a big, uh, yeah, cruise, cruise ship. Capital well, no, right yeah, the last four summers I've worked on um, Alaska cruises. So, no, Seward and uh, Ketchikan yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. Juneau and all, I know them very well. Homer. Yeah, Homer's great too, man. That's a wonderful little town. Yeah, I know, yes. but it's, it's just how funny. It's just like they make all their money in uh, three months <laughs> and, sure. then, yeah. and then it completely shuts down in October. Yeah, but that, that's also why it was like the land of opportunity. When I moved to Seward, I got the job as a kayak guide. And then I realized it wasn't really cutting it for like getting rich. So then I, when I walked to town, like every single restaurant had a hiring sign on it, right? Like Australia, or sorry, Alaska in the summer is like the land of opportunity. You can go get a job pretty easily. You can work as hard as you want, basically, and come home with your pockets full of cash. So even though I didn't make any money commercial fishing, I spent the next two months just like trying to make as much money as I could. And and I felt like it was pretty easy there because it's like everybody's hiring you know, when one of the, mm-hmm. when one of the cruise ships would offload the town size of Seward, like triples. So it's yeah. like, it's like every restaurant's full, they need staff. And so, yeah, it was, it was an interesting time for sure. And I really just love Alaska. I mean, anybody listening to this, that's considered going to Alaska that, that hasn't made it yet. Hopefully you've also, also given them this advice, Mike, oh, yeah, like, yeah. get up, get up there. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's such beautiful. a special place for sure. And you might know this too, but there's, there's like this connection between Alaska and Hawaii and there's some sort of like, you know, the, the seasonal people that do six months in Hawaii or, you know, maybe more seven, seven, eight months in Hawaii than a few months in Alaska every year and kind of straddle their time between those two locations. Oh, sure. And that's, yeah. and I think that's what led us my, my girlfriend at the time, Sunny, her and I went from Alaska to Hawaii we ended up getting jobs at the world's largest organic dragon fruit farm. So that was the next sort of gig that I had that <laughs> like allowed me to work legally or whatever, but felt like I was still kind of traveling, you know, like obviously Hawaii and Alaska are both parts of the U S but they feel very different. So I felt like I was keeping yeah. sort of the, the adventure going. What Island. So that was on Maui um, mm-hmm. in a small town called Lahaina. So if you know Maui, it's like, uh, yeah, the farm was just like a 10 minute drive from Lahaina um, so Sonny and I each actually, yeah, we like volunteered on the farm and our room and board was free, which is, which is no small huge. thing in Hawaii. Yeah. Hawaii is expensive. So we, it was really nice to just have free food and like a little tent that we were able to call home. And then we both got jobs in La- Lahaina as well. She was working at the hard rock cafe and I was scooping gelato for a little mom and pop gelato <laughs> shop and, you know, sitting there Not with my master's ice? free scooping gelato. No, no, no. Oh, and I can still give like the pro what like the difference between gelato and ice cream. I know how to give that talk still perfectly to this day because I had to give it like you know hundreds and hundreds of times for those few months. Is it just is it about the butter fat or something? Yeah, it's about the dairy fat, and it's about the main thing is actually about how it's like how the ingredients are mixed together. Gelato is folded like taffy, so there's no air in it, whereas yeah. like ice cream is whipped like whipped cream. So there, so if you leave ice cream out on the like counter bubbles. and you come back to it a week later, yeah, it'll be like half of what you thought was there. If you leave gelato on the counter for a week and you come back to it, it'll be exactly where it was a mm-hmm. week earlier. So that's it's just yeah, how much air is basically mixed into the mixture. But um, that's why gelato is so rich. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, gelato. Love it. Delicious, right? Every day in Italy. Every day in Italy, got to have some gotta you gotta um <laughs> so hawaii then, and then did you make your way like keep going did you make it to asia at some point from there that so for that trip then i went i went home for the holidays from hawaii and then i 
went back to Australia and that's when I started sort of that Australian chapter, which was about a year and a half in total because I did the year working visa. I went back for those few months that I had already mentioned where I was there illegally, got sent <laughs> yeah. from there to Asia and then did about eight, nine months in Asia, um, trying to figure out what was next. And then that's what, that's what ended up, um, as getting the job for remote year and then starting my like professional travel life where I was getting paid to do it. I'm not hearing a ton of Europe in there or did that come later? That came later. So that came, that came as part of my remote year, um, period, like remote year operated in South, South America, Europe and Asia. So yeah, it was really my first foray into Europe was through, through my work at remote year. And yeah, I was really grateful for that. I usually um, always go ahead. No, just because I, I don't like in those early years backpacking, I kind of I knew there was a light at the end of my tunnel that like and I knew I wasn't making any money doing anything for those years. So I kind of like avoided Europe purposefully trying to stay in like the cheaper places to be just so that I could extend the clock on my travels. Because, um, you know, I could I could make I could easily survive on less than a thousand dollars a month in both South America and Southeast Asia. And I kind of just knew that if I went to Europe, that would be almost an impossibility. So I was just waiting. Like I was like waiting till I had a little more like sure footing financially to, to go see, see Europe. But it was obviously something I'd always wanted to do. Um, give me, I hate playing um, favorites, you know, cause people <laughs> always ask me, you know, I've been almost a yeah, hundred yeah. countries. What's your favorite? And I was like, I can't, For sure. I can't give that to you, but I do have a handful that, yeah. If the opportunity comes up, I will never hesitate to go back to. Yeah. Do you which which countries for you fall into that category? Well, I obviously love Mexico. I've like committed, you know, the next mm-hmm. 10 years of my life to this country. So, got to got to give them a shout out first. But also, yeah, like I guess going continent by continent, I really love Colombia, I really love Bolivia. I think those are two really special countries that have so much to offer. In Europe, I think Portugal's amazing, like really just friendly, beautiful people. Spain too. I, I really, really, really love Spain. I've spent like six months in Valencia and I just always, when I was in Valencia, I was like, I could live here forever. This is just such a nice, <laughs> like bikeable city, great food, just great culture, great, great party. Um, and Prague just as a city is a place that like, I also, every time I'm in Prague, I'm like, I'm home. I, like, I could stay here. I could live here for the next <laughs> 20 years. Um, so those places. And then in Asia, I really love Vietnam. Every time I'm in Vietnam, I, I totally get it. I'm like, should I just be an English teacher and live in Hanoi forever? Cause this is fun. <laughs> and there's like such a great little community there around that. Um, and you know, so much of Asia is so easy to enjoy. It's like almost impossible to not be happy if you're in Thailand. Like they call yeah. it the land of smiles for a reason. Like it's impolite to not smile. <laughs> so it's like, you just you yeah. catch up on that vibe and you're like, this is a happy place to be. And the last one I'll mention is Japan. I really love Japan. I think it's such an interesting culture and it's a little more expensive, obviously, to be there. So like you probably want to figure out how to like work while you're there or something if you wanted to stay for a while. But um, just being there, I found I found just like myself feeling really alive. Like Japan is just interesting. Like, it makes you think all day long and it makes you feel just very like turned on basically. So I don't know. Those, those are a handful of the countries that come to mind because no, those are all I've great. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. People, do you have? I want to know. They're like, pick, pick your favorite. I'm like, oh, I, no, it's hard. yeah, I know, like, I can't do so that. So many places are great. Yeah, and I like different ones for different reasons. You know, exactly. Well, let's do the flip side and go. Not to uh, badmouth any place, but did you have any experiences that made you go? You know, if I don't make it back to this country, I'll be fine. You know, yeah, definitely. Like <laughs> Australia gave me that. Like I think you know, in the first month, I almost just was like, what am I doing here? Like, cause I just be in hostels paying like $30 a night for a, you know, a bed in a 16 person dorm and you go get a beer and it's like $9 and it's not even that good. And you're just like, I remember just feeling like I was, it was out of my control how much money I was spending every day. And I also just like 
wasn't having the best time. So I do think Australia is the kind of place that it can really break you down. Like I know how, so many people that went there on a work visa, hoping to get rich in Australia. And then they just like gave Australia $5,000 and went home two months later. Cause they just couldn't figure right. it out. Cause it's really, it's competitive. There's a lot is of people it, over there that want to do that. Right. Is it more about the expense? Because I'm surprised you say that only be the, the fact that my problem with Australia was, and I loved going, but, uh, it's too much like America in the fact that you know, there's yeah. there's nothing really there's not a it's not exactly a culture shock, you know. And they're both yeah. former colonies of Britain. They were both started around the same time. Anything older than a couple hundred years was Aborigine has been kind of wiped out, and um, you know, just there's no there's not much history in terms of you know. What I mean? And yeah, so for sure, uh, um, it's beautiful for sure. I mean, the yeah. thing that really it got me and most Americans is just the just the amazing lack of people. <laughs> that's you know, there's just Definitely. no one there. I mean, that's that's the most incredible thing. But in terms of culture, yeah, it's great. Um, but it's not. If you're looking for some kind of uh, I don't know new experience, it's not. That's not where you go to find it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like uh, there's kangaroos and koalas, and like that's a little different, I guess. Yeah. But, like, other than that, you kind of it's kind of like okay, I'm like yeah, this feels yeah, I go get familiar. beer and a meat pie, I guess. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the fine culinary additions, right? <laughs> so no. yeah, that was the one problem. It's not. It's it wasn't different enough. I guess that was my problem. Well, and, and I don't know, I, I'm just such a backpacker now. After all the years of backpacking, that like I have a really hard time even staying at a hotel because. Say a hotel costs me a hundred dollars and a hostel costs me ten dollars. I yeah. can't have. It's hard for me to have ten times better of a time <laughs> than staying at because hostels are fun to me, right? So, like in the same in the, in that same sense, like I can't have more like that much more fun in a, in a expensive kind of rich feeling country than I can have in say Vietnam or Indonesia or a lot of you know Colombia places that are cheaper Mexico. So I just feel like I'm like I don't know the equation gets off to me and I'm like I'm not having nine dollar beer fun like right. i can go back to mexico and have one dollar beer way more fun and and just feel like i'm being more responsible with with my with my money i mean like if you have infinity money go see australia it's amazing but if you're like on a budget and you're trying to make sure that you know this five thousand dollars is going to provide you as much travel experience as it can give you avoid australia at all costs like right. you, know, you know it'll be gone in two weeks and you'll be like damn i didn't see anything i just saw a couple of kangaroos and koalas like and also and also getting thrown in jail may have clouded your opinion yeah. <laughs> A little bit, <laughs> a little bit, a little, maybe I'm just a little bitter. <laughs> I have soured I you on the country, maybe just a tad, just a tad, just but a tad. Any other uh, border visa problems and run-ins with police? Do you ever have to bribe anybody? I had this one. So this is also in the end of the book, where like I was in Cambodia. I was at Anchor Wat. If, if you've been to Anchor Wat and yeah. you know the town, um, what's Siem the town Reap? there? Uh, Reap. Yeah, yeah. Siem Reap. So Siem Reap. To, like I. I However, I was picturing it in my backpacker mind before going there. It was like the jump off point for really famous temples. Siem Reap is a party town, man. Like they throw it down. I remember getting like stuck in like the party cycle where I would wake up at like noon every day. And just like <laughs> the only way to fix it was like with another beer with the random hostel yeah. buddies at my hostel bar. And I was like in a bad, like, you know, downward spiral of just partying and not knowing kind of how to end it. And then I decided like one morning with these Norwegian guys that I was hanging out with, like they were going to take a bus to, I think it's called 4,000 Lakes. It's in, in the South of Laos. So it's like right where the Cam Cambodian border crosses over and you're in the south of Laos there. And I was like, oh, yeah, let's go. I'm doing this. And I get on the bus with these guys just to kind of get out of CM Reap, right? And on the way, um, I remember like flipping through my passport and I was like, I don't know, like my passport's pretty full, but like that probably won't be a problem. Like I just hadn't heard many stories where people had like 
full passports was the reason they couldn't get into a country. And then I actually like, you know, it was my passport was getting like passed around this little bus and everybody had their own opinion and people were like, no, you'll be fine. Or something like, yeah, like, I don't know. Like it's, it's going to be tough. But anyway, I'm on this bus for like eight hours. We get to the border and within like 30 seconds, the, the guys at the little immigration shack just like looked at my passport, shook their head. No, handed me the passport back. And we're like, no, you don't have any full empty pages basically. And Laos is one of those countries in Asia that gives you like a full page sticker. Oh, I hate that. Be, I hate that too. And they needed to be like totally clean and nothing. There was even a page where I gave myself a Machu Picchu stamp. Like, you know what Machu Picchu, how there's a little passport stamp and you can give yeah. yourself. I did that. And like three years later, it came back to bite me in the ass at the border of Laos and they wouldn't let me in because that little stamp was on the only empty page that I had. Oh. So anyway, they turned me back at the border there and I was just, my watch my Norwegian friends, um, you know, cruise over the border into Laos. And I just was like standing at this immigration, like, you know, a little shack in the middle of nowhere in Northern Cambodia and had to figure out what to do from there. But th that's like one of the final last sort of stories in my book actually. And it has a beautiful ending if, if, uh, <laughs> if you want to read how that actually plays out for me, because it, it, it worked out in the best possible way like you could ever imagine really. How about any kind of injuries or food poisoning? Ever have to go to a foreign hospital for anything? <sighs> Oh yeah, man. I mean, I've had my fair share of food poisoning, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah, just some like awful tough times, like, you know, just getting holed up for 36 hours and injuries and stuff. Nothing too bad. I think, you know, I've gotten kind of lucky through that. I, I grew up playing soccer and I've had three knee surgeries because of, because of playing college soccer and that kind of thing. But in my travels, yeah, it was always ever just like, you know, the two day stomach flu from ingesting some Mm -hmm. some, you know, some salad that I was trying to eat to be healthy. And in, in turn, I got, you know, 48 hours of, uh, you know, the runs yeah. as, as I would say, but India not, took not, me down. Too crazy. Yeah. India took my stomach down. I don't know if you've been, but, uh, that's the one yeah. place I got a strong stomach, but that was, I met my maker in, uh, <laughs> in India. No, actually I, I had the same, like, have you ever heard of the rickshaw run? It's, it's an event put on by this company called the adventurists. No, it's very cool. Anybody listening and, and yourself after the, after the show might go Google them. They basically, they put on adventure races where like the whole idea is like, we're going to make this as com as uncomfortable for you as possible. And as difficult for you as possible. And so like the one that I participated with uh, was in India and you basically, they give you a little rickshaw, like one of those like three wheeled little, you know, like it's like a lawnmower engine basically, but you have to go from the, we were going from the North, west corner of india all the way down to bangalore which is like the southern point almost so it's like it's the distance from like boston to new orleans it's like a long way yeah and the highways have cows on them and it's like basically for those two weeks your whole mission as a little three-person team is to get your rickshaw from this corner of india all the way down to the southern point of india so it's crazy like super wild two weeks in my life but yeah during during those two weeks I definitely ate a mango lassie that I shouldn't have and <laughs> felt awful. And then like my buddies that I was with love telling the story. Cause they were like two days later, we were at another restaurant and I ordered a mango lassie and I got sick again. I just thought it was like the first one was bad, but yeah. mango lassies aren't bad in general, but yeah, I didn't learn my lesson. Like you know, <laughs> I was not a good Pavlov dog or whatever. I, I went right back to the well and had another mango lassie and got sick for another two days. Oh, how long were you in India? So that, that was the only time I've ever been. And it was just this two week trip. I think oh, I had a okay. couple of days on either side of the, of the, like the two week adventure trip, but yeah, I, I, I didn't even make it to three weeks and uh, I got to go back though. I really want to go just, you know, like connect town by town with a train. Like I, I feel lucky for having those two weeks. Cause I got to see like a lot of like back roads and like, you know, small little chai stands in the middle of nowhere throughout India's countryside. And it was like, you know, I felt like I got to kind of see, see the country as, as well as you can in two weeks, but obviously that's not enough time for, for a country like that size and, yeah. and that much culture, that much history.
Well, I'm older than you. I'm in like, you know, over 50. So I know you stay in and you stayed a lot in hostels and everything. But mm -hmm. I can tell you there comes a moment where you age out of them. <laughs> and uh, have you hit that moment? Because there's, there was some time I can't uh, remember where I was. And I was I, I looked around and I was the oldest guy in the hospital in the hostel, which is not a good <laughs> thing to be. You know, you're like the creepy old yeah. dude. Yeah. Why yeah. is he still hanging out <laughs> in, in a hostel? Did you ever hit yeah. that point? <laughs> or are you getting Actually, there? Do you feel it? I'm getting there. I'd, I'd say right now my sweet spot is like finding the private room at the hostel. Yeah. That's like okay. Where, that's like where I'm that's at right the now next in my step. travels. And then the next yeah. is like, you know what? Let's get a cheap Let hotel. Me just, yeah, just, <laughs> <laughs> just, just get me out of here actually. Um, but no, yeah. <clears throat> For now, that's kind of, that's, that's the, the balance I found. The, the <laughs> private room in the hostel. Well, I did read one of your recent posts and said that, you know, we're, well, we should get to Mexico and, uh, why you pick there, and you yeah. seem to be setting up a, a nesting, I guess they call it a little bit. You got a little house, and you're actually buying stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's How did weird. this transformation come about? Was it the pandemic? No, really. That what did yeah, it? Yeah, really. Really because of the pandemic. I think, like, the job I had at Remote Year being, like, the director of community there, it was kind of like a free pass to do whatever I wanted that I, you know, if I could justify that I think this is good for our community – it really was like a playground for me to just do do what I thought would be fun for the for the community at Remote Year. So all that to say, really, just like a dream job. I don't know if I ever would have left it had the pandemic not happened and like the company had to shut down for the time being because travel was no longer a thing. But anyway, all that was like a push to me to like figure out what I wanted to do next if Remote Year, you know, ceased to exist. And yeah, like, you know, I basically traveled for nine years and now in my mind, I'm like trying to switch gears, like what is it going to feel like to stay somewhere for nine years? And if I was going to stay somewhere for nine years, where would I want to be? What would that look like? And I've been coming to Puerto Escondido for a couple of years. I just always really liked this community. It feels like a place where Mexican people come to have fun in Mexico. It's not like, you know, Tulum or, or Playa del Carmen or Cancun or some of the places in the Yucatan that feel a bit like, I don't know. It's like senior frogs connected to a McDonald's connected to a subway. And you're like, yeah. I don't really know if I'm in Mexico. Like, what, this is Mexico, I guess, but like, it doesn't yeah. feel that that good it's Texas South. Yeah, more or less. Right. <laughs> but, but Puerto still like, you know, Puerto doesn't have a single McDonald's or, you know, a single mall or, you yeah. know, it's like, it still feels like it's, I think around 50,000 people that live here and specifically in the neighborhood that we bought land in, it's called La Punta. It's just kind of like an artistic bohemian community where like, there's just really like a street level connectedness, kind of like in Byron Bay. And I was like, Byron Bay was always one of these places that I held on to because I loved living there so much. And I couldn't really ever articulate why I loved living there so much. But I think it was that thing of like, you walk to the grocery store to get bananas and ramen noodles and you say hi to 10 people on the way and you walk back and you say hi to a new 10 people on the way back home. And La Punta here, like this neighborhood in Puerto has that feeling of like, I, I can't sit on my balcony and, and, and not say hi. If I have a beer on my balcony, I'll say hi to at least 10 people in that 10 minute period of time. Cause we're right on the main street here and people walk up and down and, and the community just feels pretty connected. So I think that's why we ended up choosing this place and like why I just have faith that, uh, I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of it and, and see how it grows and see how it develops and hopefully be on like the good side of that. You know, like I don't, I, I think everybody here is a daily conversation of like, are we turning into the next Tulum mm. or like, what can we do to like, we sort of know the community and the neighborhood and everything here is going to continue to grow. You can't really stop it. You can't really like fight progress or fight, you know? Yeah. But it's going to take, it takes an effective government leaders to uh keep that yeah. in check you know if they're just going to say yeah. yes to all if they think short term they're going to let people build whatever they want to build 
yeah. whether it's like, I, you know, whether it means just, just crowding the beach, making it more polluted, uh, yeah. building out into the protected jungle. I mean, they'll take the money yeah. if you're not careful, you know? Exactly. And I think here, a lot of the land is like community owned and community regulated. And like, even just in La Punta, like you can't build over three stories. So like there are a couple like regulations to kind of keep things on a scale that feels a little more manageable going forward. But yeah, I think like, you know, um, development and construction and, and like, you know, that's going to happen. It's like, you can't really fight it. It's like throwing sandbags at a hurricane or something like try, trying to stop it is like, seems yeah. kind of there's nonsense many, to me, but yeah, there's too many people in the world. Yeah. But like, <laughs> I, mean, I think we're working together in this, in the, in the community here to like recognize like, yeah, it's going to grow, but like we can choose the target. It doesn't mean that it's going to turn into Tulum inevitably. Like we can choose what the bigger version of Puerto, what, what we want that to look like and try to work, you know, behind the scenes to kind of make it so that when it does grow, we're still like really happy with the community that's still like in harmony with nature, with, you know, letting the locals sort of lead us in, in that, like in the growth or whatever. So I don't know, like we're at that point where we've been here long enough where I'm like starting to, you know, hopefully get into some of those conversations with people in town here and yeah, trying to be just like a, a you know, a part of the community. Like we plan to be here for a while. Well, you were in Mexico city before this, right? Yeah. And that's where, and that's where my partner's from. That's where her family's from. That's where she grew up. So yeah, we, we were there for six, seven months and I love Mexico city. It's such a, it's like, you know, world-class city, top three cities in the world to me. Um, so I had a great time there. I would happily live there again, but you know, I think what we wanted is to be like a part of a community and Mexico's city's got 25 million people. So it's kind of hard to feel like you matter <laughs> when you're there. Yeah. Um, whereas here, you know, we can feel like, yeah, we're like, we're in this community. We're, we're part of it. Yeah, no, I, it's nice that you can all, and when you want to taste of the city, you can always just go back and you got a place, I guess, with their family to exactly to stay because I, I had a friend who, who bought land in um, Acapulco. She bought yeah. a house there, and uh, but eventually she got a little bored uh, of the beach community and uh, yeah. bought a place back in Mexico City to be where the action was and kept, you know, we go back and forth. Yeah. So you get a taste yeah. of both. Yeah, I could, I mean, I could live in Mexico City so happily for the rest of my days. It's such a wonderful city. It's got every single thing you could ever want, every single flavor you could ever imagine. Like it's just got it all. Well, you can imagine, the, you know, I don't have to tell you that in the last uh, four or five years here in America, Mexico been on the news a lot yeah. <laughs> in the discussion. Yeah. Um, what's it been like, not only through, uh, not to get political or anything, but through the yeah. whole administration and the building the wall thing and also through the pandemic? How's it How's it been down there? Yeah. I mean, like the conversation comes up here and like, you know, I'll watch John Oliver and stuff, you know, with my girlfriend here. And she's like, ah, this, all this is always just so much about, about the U S and, you know, before Biden got into office, like so much about Trump, you know, like he dominated even like the airwaves down here to a degree where, where he was like on people's minds. But I think most people thought like, look at this Joker and the weird, you know, whatever contingency of Americans that kind of like follow, follow him and, and, you know, are, are listening to him. But I still think it always felt that way of like, this is not how most Americans feel and not how most Americans who travel feel for sure. So the people that I might bump into on the street, walking around the Amsterdam loop in Condesa, they're probably not Trump supporters. And they're probably like, no, that would be friendly to me and we could have a conversation with it. But, but if you go to Cancun, it's a different story. Yeah. 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 Or if you so might be as someone who worked on cruise ships, I can tell you. It's a different yeah, kind of traveler. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think that, yeah, but I, I, and basically just to say, yeah, I think Mexicans are, are, are 
versed enough in all of those sort of like nuances that, that they would know, like, yeah, if you're, if you're at a hostel somewhere in a small town or, you know, at a cool hostel in Mexico city, that person's probably, you know, a super liberal, like somebody who hates Trump and I don't know. Or open, open, just there. Yeah. But uh, so did they, how did Mexico city lock down as opposed to everywhere else? It was, it was, a balance. I think, I think, you know, talking to my girlfriend about it, I kind of just like let her kind of lead my thinking cause she, she's been there living there her whole life and grew up there. But basically it was like less harshly locked down than what I was seeing in the, in the States. You know, like my brother lives in DC and him and I were in touch and, you know, I, I kind of got the sense from him that it was like full, full lockdown. Um, in Mexico, it wasn't quite so full. They were doing like, you know, one person at the grocery store, you know, that kind of thing, or like, you know, masks were mandatory on the streets. But basically, from talking to Maria, my partner, she was like, I think the government is wise enough to know that you can't really like shut down everything to a halt because so many people are like on that sort of like breadline, like living week to week, like hand to mouth. And if you stop them from being able to sell food on the street, they might not have enough money to eat. Or like, you know, it might, it might result in more deaths through like second, third, like degree of things that, that result from you shutting down the economy entirely versus just like keeping the economy or keep, keeping things open a little bit so that people can still kind of do a little bit of what they would do for money. Um, so yeah, it never felt too, too restrictive in Mexico city. Like I remember I would still be able to leave my house and go to the park or go on like a bike ride. We could stop and get like street side, street side food for most of the favorite restaurants that we had in our neighborhood and stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, it felt like they were playing it pretty safe. So I don't know. I think they, they really did try to find like a nice middle ground of it, nothing got too, shut shut down but but also they were looking after like looking out for the populace and making sure people had masks and all that kind of stuff and well as someone who's um aware of over tourism and that kind of thing yeah. uh what parts of mexico would you recommend that maybe kind of off the tourist trail not to ruin them but i mean if where you recommend yeah. people not go and where do you tell people that they should really go well, I mean, I think there's a d- bunch of, you know, like New York Instagram kids showing up in Tulum and the Yucatan, that part of. Yeah, Tulum um, is just getting, it seems uh, to be getting weird. played out. Yeah, it's weird. And like every picture I see from there, it's like people with like huge hipster hats with feathers and like a kimono <laughs> yeah. and like beads. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, is that how you dress in New York? Are you just like, you have your Tulum costume when you show up there and you get all <laughs> Tulumed up or whatever. I don't know. It's a, th- that whole thing kind of has a weird vibe to me where it just feels like it's like for Instagram or something. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so the, in the Yucatan, I would still say like Merida is an amazing place. I have a few friends that live there. It's like the safest city in Mexico for one. So I always tell like my parents, if they want to go on a week trip to Mexico, I would recommend that because there's museums, there's culture, it's safe. It's got a lot of historic sort of like beautiful architecture. So Merida's cool. Um, I recently went to Veracruz with some friends because one of my good friends from Mexico City, their parents had a condo there and Veracruz has just great, cu- great cuisine, very interesting, delicious um, place to go. One of my favorite places of all in Mexico is called San Cristobal and it's in the Chiapas region. So kind of like when you're getting closer to Guatemala way down there. and it's just got like a very great, yeah, way down there. It's got like a very great, like pine trees and mountainy feeling to it. Like it's just, it feels like fresh air and it's just interesting. And I remember just feeling like it was really culturally rich. Like I was just like super like the whole Zapatista's revolution and, and like all of that stuff down there was just I don't know, like you just see the, the history and the culture all around you sort of. And it, it felt like a very interesting place to spend time. It's the kind of place I went. I thought I was going to go for two, three nights and I stayed for like two weeks because I was like, I just really love it here. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize just how huge Mexico is and how diverse it is. 
oh, it's crazy. Like, I, I, I feel like I've been trying hard to see as much of it as I can. And I, I would say I'm not even like 50% of like the major things to go, to go check out and to go see. But um, yeah, it's a huge, huge, huge country. And the food's and, good. And the food is good everywhere. You really cannot go. <laughs> and actually, the, the last place I, would, I still haven't gone that I want to go is Sinaloa, like that region, oh, which yeah. I think is kind of like north of Sayulita. Sayulita and, and San Pancho, like those two towns are also really great. They're a little more discovered, but like they're not quite, you know, whatever, Tulum yet. But like Sayulita is sort of on the, on the radar for Americans traveling to Mexico. But it's because it's amazing. Like it's a very awesome, awesome mm-hmm. place. And then north of there, yeah, in Sinaloa and, and that part of the, the coast, I'm pretty sure that's where it is. But anyway, their food is like famous. And if I ever get to eat that type of food when, when I'm anywhere else, it's just, yeah, there's delicious stuff everywhere. How about South American recommendations? For me, Colombia is huge. Medellin is like, I think, one of the, my favorite cities too. It's like the kind of city that I think I could just, I could live there half the year, every year for the rest of my life. Yeah, and That was my last trip. That was my last trip. What'd you think? It was loved it. I just I spent a week there. It was January of 2020, and I got back the January 25th, and I haven't been on a plane since. But when this comes nice. out, I will. I'm taking my first trip on Monday. We're recording this on May 27th, so I don't know what to expect. This is my. I'm very nervous. My first flight in a year and a half, which for me is oh, like wow. an eternity. An eternity. Yeah. But uh, you know, I spent a week in uh, Medellin, and uh, I thought it was really cool. Uh, you know. You know, surprisingly. Yeah, I love it. That that whole like the Zona Rosa area, it goes by a few names, but the part that feels kind of like, I don't know, most like intri- kind of like Condesa in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Like it's just so good. Like there's restaurants, bars everywhere, like just colorful, like art, tropical vegetation, like overflowing everywhere. It's got a really, really, really cool feel to it. Um, I love that neighborhood and the whole city. And you Bolivia, you, you had said, but I'd never been. That's one I haven't been. Yeah. So Bolivia, like La Paz is such a cool, um, you know, like main city to have, like as like a capital city to do sort of like jump off from for trips. So you can go to the Amazon and Rirambake and like swim with pink river dolphins. I got to do that when I was down there. You can go south to Uyuni and do the salt flats, which is just like, feels like you're on another planet. It's totally bizarre. There's like red and purple lakes with flamingos in them and like cactuses growing out of the salt. Like it's just a super strange place, you know? Um, but a very, like, there's just a lot of cool different places you can go kind of at, with La Paz as your jump off. And I just remember finding Bolivia, like the people there super kind and hospitable. And like, you know, it, it didn't feel like that thing where, I don't know, it's just like overdeveloped yet or, or like it's all for tourism to make money. It just felt, it felt pretty genuine still when I was there. Right. Um, and then I also, I, I had a, I had a month, I think a year ago, about a year ago in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil is my first time in Brazil. And like, oof, if you ever get a chance to go to Rio. Oh yeah. I've been to Rio. What a place. What yeah. a time. I was in Rio and Buzios. Those are the only two parts of Brazil I've been, but I want to get up North to like Bahia and all that. Yeah. No, yeah. I just had the taste. I, I, I was re- leading an event for a remote year for a month in Rio. So I really only got to do Rio, but I was there f- for a full month. So I feel like I got to kind of, you know, get used mm-hmm. to the, different little things about Brazilian culture that I loved. But, you know, in the end I was like biking up and down the Copacabana, like, you know, <laughs> bike lanes in my speedo, just feeling like the most Brazilian version of myself ever, uh-huh. like having, having the best time. It was, it was so good. <laughs> oh, if they could see you back in Milwaukee. Yeah. Right. Like this guy's a Packers owner. Yeah. Right. yeah. What do you, um, if anything, I mean, what do you miss about uh, living in America and what don't you miss? 
getting an IPA on tap. Um, probably like, <laughs> you know, like when I, when it I always comes back country. to beer with Wisconsin people, it always comes right? back to beer, doesn't it? Yeah, it's pretty. I mean, yeah, I guess I, I'm a stereotype. A bratwurst, from, cheese, yeah. what else? No, but it's like, it's like, give me a pulled pork sandwich and an IPA on tap. <laughs> and I'll feel like I made the biggest check on my, like, I made it back to America, check right. or whatever. But those are the things, like, just some of those, some of those little things. Also, weirdly, like Walgreens and CVSs, there aren't like, there aren't <laughs> comparable versions of those types of stores in really many places in the whole world. But like, sometimes I just like need NyQuil and I don't know how to get it easily or whatever, you know, like. Yeah. But yeah, and yeah, you'd be surprised. I don't know. I think coming from the U.S., like when people pack for a trip or get ready for a big trip, they, there's always this feeling of like you need to get everything here before you go. But like the whole world has everything. Also, like I don't know. Yeah. I, I remember thinking. I remember thinking about how wrong I was having that mindset before my first big trip when I was like reflecting on kind of you know that like younger travel brain that like I was starting to develop. But yeah, everything is everywhere. And I don't know, I, I really don't miss too much. And yeah, the things that I'm, uh, you know, it was very nice to be at a pretty good arm length distance during like the last election cycle and all that stuff. Like, obviously, I still care a lot about the country I came from and the country that all of my brothers and sisters and parents and best friends live in. But like, I'm really happy to to be at a bit of a distance from some of that stuff. And just some of the like, there just seems like a lot of tension, even among like my generation of millennials, like a lot of like finger pointing at people for being like only this woke and not this woke about like every <laughs> single issue. And I just feel like, man, is it like we just like kind of lost each other? Like everybody, I think for the most part, it's like trying their best. But like, I don't know, like instead of trying to find common ground, I just feel like it's a lot of like finger pointing on the Internet and that kind of thing. And I don't yeah. know. I think in a way it was, um, you know, kind of the worst crisis to have that kept us inside and even more separated. You know, I think a better, a better, uh, uh, an internet virus probably would have been better and made us yeah. all walk outside and actually like talk to one another again and hang out, Definitely. you know? So something that Definitely. at the time when we were already divided, this came up and it just said, okay, now everybody just lock yourselves in your house and, uh, <laughs> and stare at the internet and get more divided. You know, it's just like, that's, that was probably the worst thing that could happen at the worst time. Exactly, you know? exactly. And, and us like, as travelers, it's just like, it's antithesis yeah. to, we traveled to go meet people and, exactly. and become more open. And staying that's in not, just kind of closes us up more. Yeah, and that, that's what I was going to say. Like, you know, it's not necessarily so much the difference between like Mexico or the US, but, the, but I still feel like I'm kind of in the travel culture, being in like a neighborhood in a town where there's a lot of like kind of transient expat, like long-term expats, a lot of, you know, travelers trying to come through. And it's really not so much, yeah, that difference between Mexico and the US, but that difference between the, 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 the culture of travel and the culture of like, you know, permanency or living in a big city. And I talk about this a little bit in my book, but it's, it's just the simple thing of like, if I'm at a bar in Chicago and I walk up to a table of people I don't know, and I say like, Hey, what's up guys, I'm Travis. They're going to look at me like, what's wrong with this dude who doesn't have any friends. And well, that's only because you're up, from Wisconsin that we, we, yeah, we keep Packers you guys out. Be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Put on a bear's hat and uh, try to blend in. Will you? But you know what I mean? I, I think like that it, it is, you get sort of that like nose turned up, like, what are you trying to, why are you trying to talk to us? Like we're just over <laughs> here. At, but if you go to any group of people at a hostel or like in sort of the travel culture feeling part of the world, like anywhere in Puerto Escondido even, or like anywhere in La Punta specifically, you walk up to a group of people and introduce yourself. The kind of expectation is like, Hey, yeah, what's up? What are you doing? Like, tell me your story. Like, how'd you end up here? Like, what, what are you doing out here traveling? And it's just so much more open. And 
really, I think early on in my travels, that's what I got most addicted to. It wasn't like the feeling of like, oh, Columbia's interesting and I want more pictures from my Facebook or something. It was just, I got really sucked into that feeling of like, wow, I can connect and make friends super easily out here on the road. And like, I feel like I'm, it started to help me become like a better version of myself just through that experiment of constantly getting to like meet new people and, and see how I fit in into these different like little hostile pockets and communities that I was finding. And yeah, I just, I just really love that. And, and, and you can't really get that when you just live in Milwaukee or something. So if this lockdown taught us anything, it's that what you were doing for four years, you know, remote work and remote uh, promoting remote living is very yeah. doable nowadays. Yeah. Uh, you know, if your Wi-Fi is working, I don't know about the Wi-Fi where you're at, but you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we're, you know we're struggling what I mean? down here. A yeah. Bit. So, I mean, I saw even a migration of my friends in Chicago um, moving out of the city and you know, moving to more remote yeah. places because they realized they didn't need to be in the city. And I think, you know, totally. office space, uh, a lot of people aren't going to go back to the office. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so no. uh, not only are they moving around the U.S., they're going to start moving more and more. I mean, I would always meet a lot of expats in, let's say, Costa Rica or Mexico and stuff like that, yeah. or Asia. But now I think you're just going to see more of it. For sure. Um, what advice yeah, do you was, have to them? I mean, you were kind of ahead of the curve on this, but do you yeah. even see even more of it happening? Yeah. And like, honestly, with some of the other work I'm doing, I have a consultancy called Sprawl Consulting, and it's sort of all about like remote work and culture solutions. Feel free to Google us. But um. Yeah, basically, like we're in a lot of conversations that I find super interesting, sort of about that idea. Like, what, like you know, Elon Musk is about to launch a bunch of satellites in, in this thing called Starlink, where like you could have a co working space or a co living space in the middle of like a super remote jungle with really good Wi Fi. That's like a potentiality in like less than a year from now. So, like, when those things start to happen, happen and yeah like all this office space becomes like abandoned in cities i think cities might start certain pockets might start having like a creepy end of days feeling to them um if just like malls that you know like the big yeah there's a bunch of malls in mexico city where like the the big store at the end like whatever that was like the sears or something yeah the anchor still mall. empty yeah the it's, anchor store yeah, it's, the- it's just still empty like what are what are those going to be converted into like what type of use will those spaces have and then the housing other one hopefully think, housing hopefully <laughs> and the other one I think about a lot right now too, and that we're having some conversations around with, with one of our partners is like these massive hotels and resorts. They have always sort of relied on like the, the weekend warriors and the two week vacationers. And th- that's becoming less of a thing. People want to kind of like break the mold and like go spend three months somewhere. So I think we're, we're starting to actually talk to some of these hotel chains to see like, what would you, what kind of discount would you offer sort of that, that long-term stay digital nomad who might want to just stay in like the comfort of your hotel for two months? What kind of discount can we offer them and start to use like, you know, half of this, half of the beds in certain hotels around the Caribbean and down into the, into Central and South America. Why don't we use half of those beds for long-term nomads and, and try to give them a deal? And it's going to be some of that generation of people, kind of like we talked about earlier, that don't necessarily want that hostile feeling. They want like to be taken care of. They would love to have you know a nice hotel pool and a nice hotel restaurant, but they don't want to pay hotel prices necessarily. And on the hotel side, it's they got empty beds. So like, let's figure out a way to work all together to fill those beds with the people that want to go spend two months in the Bahamas or whatever, wherever it might be. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of those things, like a lot of those conversations, are starting to happen. Um, around the future of work and the future of, you know, what the digital nomad's going to look like, but it's going to change a lot. That's basically like the one thing I, I know for sure. Like I'm excited to see what it was. I think the digital nomad also always used to sort of be this like hostile hopping sort of like Airbnb live on the cheap type type people. And I think with the proliferation of remote work and now everybody sort of has remote work experience 
it's really impossible sort of to deny that it's not an effective way to get work done. Like there's been, you know, so many studies on that that show that most of the time remote workers are actually more productive than their counterparts in the office and all that kind of stuff. So it's really, I think for bosses and management, it's going to be hard to not let them like give the freedom to, to their teams and to their people. And then what people want to do with that freedom, it's going to be really interesting to see like, yeah, whether it's moving out of the city to more remote areas just to get away from the city or, or move into a co-living space in the middle of the jungle in Bolivia, like that might, you know, be able to still have really good Wi-Fi because there's satellites in the sky and what's going to happen. You know, it's like, there's a million things that play around, around it and how it's going to shake out. But I, I think remote years in a really good position now that they've relaunched some of their programs. Um, people want to travel while working. And I think, you know, we're just going to see more and more versions of that and more people kind of taking that life path in the next five, 10 years. Well, uh, tell people your um, websites, just to get in your other plugs. Uh, where can people find you and see what you're doing? And, and we're going to try to have these links as well on uh, Travel Tales, but uh, just awesome. shout it out. TravisWKing.com is, is the main website. On Instagram, you can find me at Travis King Travels. Hope that's easy enough to remember. And then the book has its own Instagram, which is NTAA underscore memoir. Um, so that's also linked in the bio on just my personal account, Travis King Travels. So you can find all that information. And then if you're interested in some of this remote work stuff we just got into talking about, you can Google Sprawl Consulting or just sprawlconsulting.com. That's the website for, for our remote work consultancy. Um, but yeah, check out check out my website. I think first and foremost, if you're interested at all in, in the book and just really honest, raw travel memoirs, I just got over a hundred star, hundred five star reviews on Amazon. So for being self-published and for having the book not be out that long, I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. And I'm really happy with the, the reception it's been getting. Um, I'll make sure to get you a copy Mike. Just so oh, you know, yeah, I'd love get it. A, I'll get you a, a signed copy if I can, if I can pull that off. Oh yeah. But, you um, can send me an e-copy too. You don't have to. Uh, you know, you know, and then I'll send an autograph postage. in the mail. Just <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Headshots, eight by yeah, ten. You po- post it onto your Kindle for me. Um, <laughs> uh, so we need to wrap this up, but I know you got things to do. And um, was one of them install air conditioning in your place? What's going on there? So we, we have it just in the bedroom, but anywhere else in our house, <laughs> man, is it hot? It is hot. Yeah, summer's coming, buddy. Summer is yeah. coming. How yeah, far are you from the beach? It's getting more noticeable every day, actually. We're like uh, two blocks. So, yeah, so oh, okay. close. Well, I go play good. volleyball most most evenings with a group of friends here on the beach. That's a good life. That's nice. That's nice. Before we go, I just wanted to uh, ask you the same question I ask everyone that's on. How has all this travel changed you as a person and how you look at yourself and how you look at the world? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think it's really like reinstilled the idea that like happiness and wealth are not the same thing and like how much you can do with the right things or like with less basically. Um, So just, yeah, trying to, trying to prioritize and trying to redefine what success looks like for me, basically. That's great. That's great. Thanks. Thanks, man. All right. Well, hang on. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you in a bit, but we're going to say goodbye to everybody else. That's Travis King, everybody. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks. (laughs) 